Andy, thanks for joining. Um, okay. So a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Steve Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. Our show today is on what's hot in artificial intelligence, what's working and what's hot um, uh, in healthcare. Our guest today is Austin Walters. Austin is the founder and managing director of Springtide Ventures, an early stage health technology venture fund. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the normal format of the show. It's 90 minutes long, and Austin and I will spend the first half discussing news and macro issues and some other topics. Then we'll focus on our topic of the day, which is um, what's hot in artificial intelligence in healthcare. After that, we'll be taking call-ins from the audience. In order for you to do more than just watch the show, you need to register an account with Colin. Um, once you, you, you can do that by visiting callin.com and then coming back to this page. You can also register through the Colin social podcasting app in the app store. Um, so uh, once you've registered, you can use text chat or press the website's call in button to indicate you want to speak up and join the discussion. Uh, so, Austin, can you please, uh, I just gave a brief introduction of you. Can you introduce yourself a little more? Tell us more about, uh, about yourself and Springtide Ventures. Very happy to and good to be with you today, um, Stephen, and with the, the, the rest of you who have tuned in. Thank you. So uh, I'm Austin Walters, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and Wyoming and Utah. Those are kind of my three places uh, where I spend most of my time. I'm the founder and managing partner of Springtide Ventures. We are a early stage health tech uh, investor. Um, we typically act as a lead investor for the greatest uh, healthcare companies of tomorrow. Uh, we um, have this uh, focus uh, in large part due to our experience as entrepreneurs, um, operators. That's a big part of our firm's ethos. So my background, I had four ventures prior to founding Springtide in 2018. Um, two of them in health tech that I'll mention are Echinos, which is a handheld ultrasound company using AI at the edge on the probes themselves. The idea is to put uh, uh, superhuman diagnostic capability into the hands of skilled nurses and other primary care providers that haven't had access in the past. Um, just as a side note, Stephen, um, and we'll... Um, in case there's not a chance to get to this later, over 500 AI algorithms have been cleared by the FDA uh, for, for definitive diagnosis, diagnostic purposes, which is extraordinary. Um, I also founded a company called Edalytics that uh, provides precision genome editing analytics to most of the gene therapy companies. Um, I also spent some years working closely with uh, the late, great Clay Christensen uh, at Harvard Business School as a, as a student and employee at InnoCite, uh, where I consulted the C-suites of, of Walgreens, Medtronic, and J&J &J on disruption in healthcare. 
Um, also invested with him in Rose Park Advisors, a Boston-based um, hedge fund. Uh, though most of what they do is growth, growth stage venture now. Um, so that's a bit of my my background. That's great. So you have probably winced like me when you heard the term disruptive used incorrectly 10,000 <laughs> times. Um, and if I ever have to get clear on, on whether something is disruptive according to the actual definition, I'll have to go to you to find out. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> me or, or better yet, one of Clay's books, but yes. <laughs> uh, it's tricky. It doesn't just mean new. It doesn't just mean better, you know? Um, so, uh, uh, great. Well, so we typically kick off with talking about the macro environment. So, um, and, it, you know, in the old days, young company leaders and VCs didn't have to worry about the macro environment. Unfortunately, because it's a worse macro environment, uh, people are thinking about it a lot more um, and hoping it'll get better. Um, so I haven't really seen a lot of major announcements about inflation or, or interest rates um, in the last week or so. There's been a lot of uncertainty in the stock and bond markets. Um, uh, and that, that's driven, I think, primarily by um, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell saying the other week that interest rates will be higher longer. Um, he also seems to have stopped raising rates, which is which is good for the innovation economy. We don't like young companies don't like uh, higher interest rates. Um, and uh, uh, but keeping rates high is bad for the U.S. government and commercial real estate. And that has knock on effects for the rest of the economy. And people have been kind of hoping that I think the bond market had priced in that he would be reliably lowering rates soon. But now nobody thinks he's going to be lowering rates for at least four quarters uh, or mm -hmm. so. Um, we'll have our next um, FOMC meeting November 1st. Uh, and uh, I think according to the Fed's own framework, it might raise rates one more time. And if it did, it probably would be 25 basis points before the end of the year. So people are watching that. And um, I think that the conventional wisdom is that he's not going to raise rates. He raised rates once recently, but he's not going to raise rates again before the end of the year. But that'll partly be determined by CPI prints that come in between now and then. So any thoughts on um, on the macro environment? Did you see any news you want to call to the attention of our audience? Or do you have any thoughts as to where the economy is going? That's a little above my pay grade, Stephen. I've thought thought about this. Um, I also am a, a native optimist, a fairly pr profound optimist. I will say, um, so we have a hedge fund. Uh, this is not uh, generally publicly known, but we launched a hedge fund earlier this year in April. Uh, a separate team that manages, it's called Springtide Global Advisors. And um, the the fund was looking very very good until about a month ago um, th this year, <laughs> and everything kind of fell again. But the the strategy there is to you know, there's been such incredible displacement in in valuations among small cap and micro cap stocks in in healthcare uh, relative to their fundamentals. Um, in fact, according to our analysis, and I, we're not sharing screens or anything, but. Um, it's it's like a seventy year low relative to the um, to to the benchmark indices um, for health tech micro um, um, and small cap stocks specifically. So our our theory is to uh, to go in um, and build a concentrated portfolio very similar to what we do in venture, uh, because we believe there will be um, you know the market will will return. Um, 
you know, when that will happen, I think it's anyone's guess. We thought if you'd asked us uh, kind of late last year, we thought mid this year, and that looked to be happening, uh, sort of a, a long, slow climb out of it. But uh, here again, over the last month, we're, we're, we're in the doldrums um, with the decline. So there, there's a lot going on, right? Um, I mean, our government, uh, pending government shutdowns, I mean, uh, unprecedented uh, kicking out of McCarthy, um, out of the speaker's seat, this is these are uncharted waters. Obviously, the Ukraine war, lots, lots happening. So, I don't know, um, but our feeling is that um, that uh, things uh, will stabilize, um, and uh, you know, the market should should return to some semblance of of up and to the right. Um, early next year is our current thinking, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, interesting. You, you mentioned all of the political turmoil, um, and that's not good for making bets that last five to 10 years. Um, there's a direct effect and an indirect effect of, of uh, global political turmoil. And the direct effect is that the outlook looks worse everywhere, and that's not good. And then the U.S. benefits unfairly sometimes. Yes. Because yeah. however bad it looks in the U.S. in terms of you know, low population growth is bad. Political instability is bad. These are global phenomena. Um, uh, and uh, however bad it looks in the U.S., it always looks worse everywhere else. <laughs> and, so, and this causes all of the world's uh, uh, capital allocators in the Persian Gulf, Europe, East Asia, to want to increase their allocation to the U.S., even though in the U.S. we're saying, you know, the prospect today is worse than the prospect. The forward prospect today is worse than the forward prospect ten years ago. But if you, you know, own a string of auto dealers in Thailand, you want to increase your allocation to U.S. capital, U.S. equities, not decrease. And so we, there's this indirect effect is actually bigger than the direct effect. The direct effect would say get your money out of U.S. stocks. The indirect effect says everyone else in the world is putting their money in U.S. stocks. Um, so uh, it's, it's an irony that we unfairly benefit from. Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, now another um, issue is I, I want to look back on we had a, we had a testing of the IPO market and this could be important because investors are counting on getting their money successfully out of tech companies and healthcare companies and digital health companies and then some of those investors need to get that money out they need liquidity so as to be able to put that money back in venture funds um, and uh, so looking at that we had a test of the IPO window. The IPO has, has been closed for six quarters. Um, and uh, so ARM, the UK chip maker, which is a, um, an, a, an artificial intelligence play or was seen that way by stock market investors, um, it spiked on IPO. And since then, it's been down 16%. So Instacart, um, also seen as a tech company, um, it spiked on IPO. And since then, it's down 19%. Um, and Clavio is a classic SaaS marketing automation company that, that people understand SaaS companies. Um, and it has had a, a, you know, up and down phase and it's currently up 2%. Um, so what we want to see the classic opening of an IPO window would be for digital health would be that some tech companies go out and they go up 15% and stay there. That would be mm -hmm. ideal. Sometimes they can spike higher than that. But we want them to go up 15% and stay there. And if several do, then 
all the tech unicorns boards are going to go tell they're, they're all time clocks ticking. Most of them are past the point where they should have liquidity for investors by now. They're all going to try to IPO. Um, and so, and then uh, digital health follows that. You would see some some healthcare and digital health unicorns IPO, and then the rest would would um, IPO. But digital health software companies follow the lead of tech, which is much, which is much bigger um, and more aggressive. Uh, and so, um, so what are we to make of this? And, and the innovation economy very much wants the IPO window to open up. We want the IPO to open up. We want buy side investors. Who have an app, who have capital and have an appetite for IPOs, so long as the market is good for them, um, we want to see those IPOs. We want to see unicorns go public, uh, and we want to see paydays for investors who will then and management teams who will then put that money back into investing in new startups and founding new startups. Um, so we want to see all of that. And so the the answer is is this has been a kind of a stumble. It's not terrible, um, but it's also not a classic opening of the window, and so. I, I think we're we're not necessarily going to see um, you know the uni- the boards of unicorns green light and IPO. We're going to see some very high quality companies are going to continue to IPO at a slow rate, and if if they start to perform better, the market's going to be demanding you know outstanding brands, outstanding customers, outstanding market positions, outstanding margins, outstanding um, you know moderate growth rates, um, etc. Of these companies that IPO, so the the iffy companies and the the, the, the sort of promise companies, the, the on the come companies, are not going to be able to IPO, but some high quality ones will. And we're waiting to see um, a, a better IPO environment. So it hasn't it hasn't opened in September October, but it could still open before the end of the year or early next year. Um, and then. An analyst at PitchBook, Aaron DeGagney, he put out the companies he's hearing in digital health that he thinks will IPO, that he's hearing mentioned the most often. And he's saying it's Noom, uh, they are weight loss, Roe, that's uh, consumer pharmacy, Everly Health, that's home tests, uh, Quantum Health. Uh, so those are, those are some of the companies. <coughs> And um, I, I see an interesting consumer pattern in there. There certainly was a wave of funding of consumer companies over the last five years. And I see some of them getting out potentially for IPOs. So um, uh, Austin, what's your verdict on this attempt to open the IPO window? Uh, you know, and do you think we're, we're going to see digital health companies you know, start to say they're going out for an IPO uh, in the next three to six months? I, I hope so. And um, we had an event recently uh, with the Blue Shirt Group, and, which is an IPO advisory firm in the Bay Area, um, as well as Cross Creek um, Capital in Salt Lake City, which is a, a public-private investor. They, they invest in ventures that they hope will go public. And I think their track record they mentioned on the, um, the meeting was something like, 20 to 30% of their investments do end up going public. Um, that was a, a meeting with all of our CEOs to help them prepare um, to go public, whether they end up doing that or not. Um, there are some headwinds uh, in, in general, I think, with respect to IPOs for ventures, um, uh, such as the increased cost of, of going public as well as um, staying public. Um, 
both in dollars, compliance, time, and so on, you really have to be at a, a, at a place that um, is, is healthier. Uh, certain sectors, subsectors in healthcare like biotech, where it has been more common to go public earlier than that, have been hit especially hard in the downturn. And, um, and health IT is not um, immune to that. I was just looking at um, American Well stock. It's a good, good old Boston company um, uh, that went public. Uh, I remind myself of the of the date here. Um, so it was yeah uh, September 2020, and um, yeah it was listed on September 17, 2020. Hit a high of $35 a share. It's now a dollar eight a share. Wow. Uh, as of today, which is its all time low, and it's just been on a downward slide um, since then. So I think, again, among small and micro cap companies, I see a lot of hesitation around going by. Certainly, um, I think if you were to ask um, some of the management of, of American Well, whether they wish they had stayed private, they, they might wish that they had stayed private. Um, they have plenty of cash, by the way, strong fundamentals company. Um, I'm a big believer in American Well. Their revenue uh, doubled um, in 2020 from, I think, $125 million to $250 million or so a year. And the thing is, Stephen, it stayed there, even as the pandemic has subsided, but the market doesn't appreciate that, apparently. It, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. So so I think um, there are a lot of folks waiting in the wings. I think, to your, to your point, you really have to be in extraordinary shape. Um, to to feel comfortable going public at this point. Um, uh, I think in, in terms of cash on the balance sheet, fundamentals, profitability, um, run cash runway and so on. Um, that's what I'm seeing um, from my from my early stage venture perch. So I'll qualify my thoughts on IPOs that way. Most of the, the liquidity we see is in private transactions, but um, um, some thoughts. That's great. Thank you. Uh, and so at, at this point in the show, I'm, I'm going to reiterate my thesis. So I have a thesis that, that you know, the, the venture investment environment in digital health is very tough right now. Deal volume is, is, is down a great deal from, say, the average of 2020 and 2021, which were boom years. Um, and, uh, and so I think I have an optimistic view, and I think we're going to see the, mar the venture investment pick up in the next couple of quarters in Q4, Q1. And I think the conventional wisdom is it's not gonna pick up for at least four quarters. And so my, my, my view is optimistic compared to the conventional wisdom. And the two markers I'm, I'm following are, number one, uh, that the Fed stops raising rates, thereby reducing uncertainty. And I think the Fed has stopped raising rates. And it's also said that rates are gonna stay higher longer. But I think the Fed has effectively stopped raising rates, whether or not we get a single additional 25 basis point hike or not. So that's good. And then secondly, I think I think the IPA window is going to open. Um, and what we've seen is a, a disappointing open of the IPO market in, in the last two weeks. But there's there's more to come. We have to follow that. Um, uh, and uh, and I'll, I'll continue to to, you know, to sort of weigh in and update this thesis. Um, so but I, I wanted to get that that sort of reiterate the thesis out there. So the next is, 
industry reports. Have any reports come out? I, I haven't seen any reports come out that I thought were worth bringing to our audience's attention. But have you seen any reports this week that you think are worth talking about? Not this week, Stephen. Okay, so the next is news and trade journal articles. So here, um, I think the first article that caught my attention was a really disappointing story, which is that STAT reported this past week that Biogen has shuttered their digital health group and that uh, there's 150 people in that group who are either being reassigned or let go. So by the way, these are often younger, um, more you know, sort of challenge-seeking professionals who chose to go into innovation instead of managing an off, you know, an off-patent um, drug or something uh, within within Biogen. Uh, and so these are these are people who you, as Biogen should be keeping, and instead they're suffering a pretty significant blow to their careers and looking for jobs. Um, and they also nixed their clinical trial with Apple as part of cost cutting. And so I think there's a couple of things going on here. So first of all, this is very disappointing to hear from Biogen. It's also happening at Novartis. It's also happening at, at other bio, at other big pharma firms, firms you think would have a lot of cash and could sustain this. So I think the, the first thing about this is that these groups were always going in many different directions at the same time. Digital meant six different things. And I think that None of them have really knocked the ball out of the park. And so, that, so the fundamental issue is they're trying to innovate in six different ways uh, from dis drug discovery to clinical trial automation to uh, sales automation to, uh, to um, prescription digital therapeutics and companion apps and all of that. And none of them really took off. And we actually all saw the prescription digital therapeutics sector suffer some blows with both with Pear going bankrupt and Achilles pivoting away from the prescriber channel and toward the consumer channel. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that um, Congress passed a reform law that allows CMS to negotiate drug prices with pharma, which means that CMS will be negotiating drug prices on pharma's biggest blockbusters that are on patent down. And so pharma is starting to become anxious about cash which means that every budget in healthcare that you sell into <laughs> as a vendor is now anxious about cash. It used to be pharma was the only sort of drunken sailor, rich and spendy guy on the block. And now pharma also is uh, worried about cash. Um, so uh, th this could reflect, um, you know, uh, drug companies facing patent cliffs and realizing that some of their blockbuster drugs are going to have their price cut by CMS negotiating. I think that's the, the, the big trend here. But it also means some of our friends in uh, pharma who were the most receptive people to our messages about selling software into pharma um, are, don't have jobs there anymore. So anyway, uh, do, you, any, do you have any thoughts on, on this trend? No, I think it's short-sighted. Um, may, may not come as a surprise uh, as, a, as a digital health champion. I think it's a... It's a question of how and how much um, and uh, and when, uh, but I think uh, the value is is in fact uh, fundamental um, that digital is providing. So I hear in some uh, corners of the market that digital is dead uh, have so many case studies to the contrary. Uh, I think that uh, those um, digital providers that survive um, this cash crunch and, um, you know, manage uh, prudently through it will come out the other side um, 
in a very, very healthy way. Um, so, uh, I think that's what I would, I would say about that. Um, but, uh, the, the kind of wholesale shuttering of divisions, um, I, I uh, have a hard time understanding that. Yeah, that, that's great. And then we also have, uh, Sergey, um, is asking any insights on the Biogen digital health shutdown, what happened exactly? Um, I, I don't know any more details than just the trade journal stories. Um, and I, I'm hypothesizing that, you know, they were, they were going in six different directions and none of them really hit. So that there's a pharma has a fundamental problem, which is that, uh, that their margins are incredibly high on their on patent drugs. Um, it may be the, the world's greatest business model may be to sell an on patent drug at a very high price and then do nothing else. Don't help patients, you know, don't, don't, don't get great outcomes, don't do anything else, just sell the drug. Um, and so any additional business that pharma starts is going to actually look unattractive compared to selling pills. Um, so selling a prescription digital therapeutic is going to have, it's digital, but it's going to actually have lower margins than selling a pill. Um, so everything that they cooked up with their, with the, with their cash pile looked worse than the ordinary business model of pharma. Um, so, um, uh, the, uh, yeah, so uh, Sergey uh, adds that, uh, you know, that, so similar to what I was saying, he adds that uh, the margins are just not there for most of the digital health businesses uh, or no monetization path. Um, yeah, so, um, and so I'll, I'll move on to other, other stories now. So um, I was very pleased to see that Sevenwire, the outstanding Chicago digital health venture fund that, that helped to create and back Luvongo, um, they have raised a new fund, a $217 million fund, bringing their total assets managed to $500 million. Um, and so this is an outstanding uh, digital health venture fund. Um, and uh, uh, and there's, there's great concern among uh, fund families, among venture funds, that uh, LPs are, are getting out of the business. LPs are, their, their own ratios are out of whack. Uh, they don't want to answer capital calls. They are allocating uh, to, ha to have less in alternative investments, which is the VC asset class. And LPs were even kind of frozen for a while, causing uh, venture fund leaders in, in California, notably, to go to the Persian Gulf to get LPs. Um, that was a trend for uh, 12 months. Um, and then to see recently a couple of outstanding digital health venture funds, including um, Lynn O'Keefe at Defined Ventures and now um, Glenn Tolman and Lee Shapiro at uh, Sevenwire successfully raised next funds uh, is, is great. It's, it, there, there haven't been as many funds. The number of funds raised has been down for six, for six quarters a lot, but it's great to see some movement. Um, so, um, and, and Stephen, I would, I would uh, just add with respect to Sevenwire, um, their anchor LPs are payers. Uh, which I think is is quite interesting um, from, a, again, the, the, many digital health um, solutions are oriented to value-based care, particularly if it's tech-enabled services. Um, so, um, you know, we, I don't know if we want to go down the rabbit hole of all the ways that, digi you know, successful digital health solutions have monetized uh, to Sergey's question, but there are, in fact, many paths um, uh, most of which are value-based care oriented. Um, and, and I do see a secular trend of uh, more providers taking on more risk. 
over time. Yeah. It, it happening more slowly than uh, than than many people that like value based care want, but it is happening. Um, so just uh, wanted to add that context on seven wire um, that there, there it, it's it's a question of which LPs, right? In in my experience, it's it's the you know, financial, the institutional financial LP types, the endowments and the pensions and, and multifamily offices and so on that uh, had their public equities portfolio really uh, decline in value, have the denominator effect and feel overallocated to venture, not necessarily because of anything in venture itself. But just in the context of their 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 greater portfolio, um, it, it's breaking their allocation percentage policy. Basically, um, those are the financials. Now, the strategics, uh, all of that is much less important. Um, so, I, I think kind of watching what they do is indicative. And Seven Wire is very illustrative in that in that case. Mm-hmm. And so we have a question from Lisa, which is, "What do you think of hybrid care models combining physical and digital care? Are these?" Um, interesting provider business models in the U.S. Uh, and so, so you know, yes, I think there's a wonderful opportunity here for hybrid care models. Um, and there's a couple of things going on. The first is that um, there's a special role for technologists to contribute value here because traditionally actual physicians, so the tip, very often in the U.S. you've had physician-led medical practices, physician-led care, physician-owned uh, enterprises, and physicians are terrible at running small businesses and terrible at buying technology and terrible at using technology. And so there's a role here for the technologist to step in. And the classic example of this is one medical group where you had uh, technologists at the top and you ha- who brought on the, the right number of physicians and, um, uh, and nurses, but they also had 300 software developers developing proprietary internal systems you know, in San Francisco for years um, building stuff. And that's something that doctors would not have done. They would not have built this kind of medical practice. Um, so there's a role here for technologists. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that um, it's to a certain extent, it's only half right for venture because uh, you're you're. This is we're talking about hybrid care. Hybrid care is care, uh, and traditionally VCs have not wanted to invest in care. There's a small number who are trying to make a practice out of investing in care. But traditionally, VCs don't want to uh, invest in care. And the reason is that care um, has low margins compared to software <clears throat> and it's harder to scale compared to software. Uh, and so that and that's going to automatically mean lower returns to VCs. And so you need VCs who see the opportunity to be potentially very big in the in the distant future, um, but are willing to accept, uh, you know, the, the lower returns that go with care um, and uh, you know, lastly, I think you're seeing this. There's been massive behavior change in healthcare. I would not have believed we'd have this much behavior change five years ago or ten years ago. But the behavior change is that young people expect to get care from their phone, uh, and also physicians are now wired up because of the pandemic. Physicians who didn't want to change and wanted people to come into the office, 100% of them started seeing patients in video calls, uh, and none of them are really objecting to video calls and video uh, workflow and digital workflows anymore. Um, and so you have patients and providers um, are both, uh, you know, uh, digitally enabled now. And five years ago, we would not have expected the change to have arrived that quickly. And so because of that, uh, the uh, hybrid care models can work better. They can do things digitally when it makes sense from a care or a money perspective to do it digitally, and they can do it in person when it makes sense to do it that way. Um, so Austin, any, any thoughts? No, I think, uh, I think that those are excellent. 
So just, I'll just quickly cover, you know, uh, so we're in a phase where there are far fewer deals. I like to talk about um, fundraising deals and there's far fewer fundraising deals in the last week than we normally have in October. That's reflective of the, uh, the capital crunch that's going on right now. There's more stories of layoffs and of shutting companies down than there are stories of new launches or fundraises. But nevertheless, I was interested to see MIDI Health, a virtual care clinic, virtual care that, that's sort of like hybrid care, that's one side of hybrid care, um, for women over 40 with CEO Joanna Strober raised a $25 million Series A led by Google Ventures. Um, and I think that's Frederick uh, Dane is the partner there on that. So this is really great. So first of all, this is Google, a software company that likes to invest in software and data plays, is investing in care. Um, so they're making a bet on care, which has lower margins and grows more slowly. Um, so uh, that's nice to see Google Ventures, Google Ventures doing that. Um, and also, um, you, know, you usually see a leading independent financial venture firm do the lead and you see corporate venture funds follow. Um, but in the current environment, you're seeing more and more corporate venture funds lead. Um, and that's often because the financial venture funds are paralyzed for some reason. They're, they've become less active. They don't believe in their old investment theses. Um, they've got, they've, they're um, triaging their existing portfolio. They can't do a capital call with LPs, whatever the reason is. Um, uh, we've seen a lot of um, financial venture funds uh, be frozen for six quarters. Um, and so as a result, we've seen corporate venture funds step up to be the lead. Um, and so I think that's part of what we're seeing here. Um, Austin, any thoughts on, on MIDI Health? No, no thoughts on the, on the company in particular. And then we also have San Francisco-based uh, Plentiful. It's a workflow automation platform for pharmacy and healthcare operations. And it launched this past week with $9 million in funding led by Bessemer. So the CEO of Plentiful is Joy Liu. And I'm guessing the partner at Bessemer is probably Steve Krauss. Um, and so you know, this looks great. This is a classic um, digital health venture deal. And it, and it looks like uh, Bessemer got in early, which is great to see them doing with a big round for, for a launch um, uh, round. Uh, and uh, so this is great. We just need to see more of these. And also, I think that uh, there's a lot of opportunity for difficult workflow automation, uh, which is not glamorous in healthcare operations and pharmacy and that sort of thing. And so I'm, I'm glad to see this company uh, launching. So those are my, uh, in, those are the deals I thought was worth calling attention to and my interpretation of them. Austin, any, any other trade journal news? Uh, no trade journal news. No. So then the next section, we talk a little bit about, about valuation. So as a whole, digital health public stocks are down 80% from the boom. This is awful. Um, and, uh, and they remain down. Um, and NASDAQ performance unexpectedly since, since January is NASDAQ's now at about 13.2 thousand. And since January, it's up 32%. And a lot of that is in the top 10 or top seven largest tech stocks that are, that are moving that average up. Um, so, uh, but a, a, a high and rising NASDAQ is good for innovators and, and the valuation levels help to reset some of the valuations for private companies uh, seeing the NASDAQ rise. Um, so uh, the most recent SAS capital index um, for, for August shows uh, median SAS valuations of about 6.9 times forward revenue. And that compares to prior month of 7.1 times forward revenue. And this reflects 
uh, relative uh, the, the NASDAQ pulled in a bit in August from highs. Um, and this compares to a long-term median of SaaS valuations of, four, of eight times forward revenue. Um, so today, high growth SaaS is trading at about eight to 12 times forward revenue. And that compares with highs two years ago of, um, of, of high growth SaaS trading at 30 times forward revenue yeah. and median SaaS trading at 16 times forward revenue. So, so SaaS trading is, is still, those valuations are still way down from the peak in 2021. Um, in addition, the valuation environment is still risk off. What risk off means, this is public, public markets, the stock market. It means that uh, they give a lot of credit to companies with positive earnings uh, and they're more skeptical about companies with negative earnings. They want them to prove that, that they don't reward the potentialities. They, they're not rewarding a high growth rate if your earnings are negative as much as they did in the past. They, they're a bit skeptical and they, they pay less attention to earnings negative companies. So the valuation environment is still risk off. Um, and the, the IPO window may be opening, but it's not clear. Um, so down rounds are still happening with private companies and we're seeing some some nasty, scary terms like two times participating preferred being thrown into down rounds. Um, uh, and uh, and the VCs I'm talking to are saying that companies are still not belt tightening enough and that and that private market valuations are still unrealistic and are going to face down rounds. And some of them are saving their dry powder to deal with ongoing messes. Um, so um, any thoughts on, on the valuation environment, uh, Austin? I'll just add uh, some some data. Um, one of our companies has been in the market all year. Um, it's a good company, quadrupled revenue from uh, last year, doing half a million in ARR to approximately two million at this point. Um, so probably considered high growth, right? Doing that kind of within a 12-month uh, period of time. Um, and... Uh, spoke with a lot of uh, funds. Uh, the best they could do was 5x forward-looking revenue um, as a tech-enabled service. So not uh, not SaaS, um, but in healthcare, it's actually more rare, I think, to find pure SaaS companies, right? In, in the way that, that Silicon Valley VC is is used to looking at enterprise SaaS, you can find it. It exists, but it's 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 much more rare. Um, almost always in our experience, there's a service layer that's fatter um, than typical enterprise SaaS. And so you're going to see um, a margin reduction as a result of that. And, and we're seeing, uh, you know, 5x um, uh, multiples that are that are that are being given, uh, which creates down round conditions uh, if the if the company's raised in 2021 or even early 2022. Um, so, yeah, bridges are um, becoming increasingly common. Uh, I'm actually in the process of writing a piece um, uh, with some folks at, at uh, HBS called Bridges to Nowhere um, uh, <laughs> about the dangers of bridge financings and, um, you know, some implications for how to manage them. Um, so I, I think I would, I would agree with a lot of those points that, um, you know, really you just need to make sure that uh, if you're bridging, you're bridging to the other bank and not bridging halfway across the, the river. Um, and uh, I think um, uh, bridging generally is a negative signal 
for a venture. Um, so really ensuring that uh, runway is, is in a healthy place and, and that the fundamentals in terms of revenue growth are strong. Um, the investors that have been on the board um, and are um, uh, insiders are best positioned to evaluate that. Really, it's, it's very difficult in this environment for new investors to, uh, to, to really wa want to dig in and, and um, take, take risk um, on those types of, of opportunities. And so I'm, I'm also hearing something interesting, and the way you talked about a bridge to nowhere, you know, uh, reminded me of this. But, you know, a way to look at the innovation economy and the market of young companies and VCs, um, and we, we should look at it before 2009, which was the beginning of the zero interest rate policy, and after 2009. So before 2009, you could say at any given moment, there was a small percent of young companies that shouldn't get the next round. They were, and it's hard to say who they were exactly, but you might say that it's somewhere between five and 10% of companies raising, young companies raising rounds, um, you know, shouldn't raise their next round. And it's hard to say. And the capital markets were very, um, were very disciplined, uh, tough-minded capital markets at that time. So then you had the global financial crisis of 2008 to 9. You had the Fed zero interest rate policy of 2009 that lasted until effectively 2022. Um, and in that period, that unknowable percent of companies that probably should not be able to raise their next round um, uh, went up um, because companies could always, the, the number who, that, who were wound down from, from year to year went down and the number that were viable on a fundraising basis, but not on an operational basis went up. So there was this new number, we don't know what percent, but maybe it was more than 10%, um, for example, um, that, sh that, that shouldn't have been able to raise the next round, but did year after year. Yeah. Um, now we're playing a game of musical chairs and the music just stopped and they took a chair away. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we're, we're witnessing and companies have been told to figure out how to make it for two years on whatever they last raised. Um, and we're witnessing this very tough environment where companies that were always able to get a bridge, go, you know, in a, in a zero interest rate environment now are really facing a skeptical look at how good are your customers? How good is your product market fit? How are you really one of the top 10 pain points of the hospital CIO? That, that kind of thing. And so we may see an outsized amount of companies in the current time frame not make it to the next round, not be able to get, they, they were able to get multiple bridges in the past. They can't get their next bridge or whatever. So, um, yeah, I, 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 absolutely, Stephen. I, I think a, a, a loose environment where cash avail is available um, widely and it's slushy engenders poor habits in terms of, of cash efficiency, capital efficiency, in terms of incurring overhead costs that can be very difficult to roll back. Um, and in, in, in terms of uh, assuming that uh, more capital is forthcoming. Um, so um, there are ways that there are implications there from, from an investment standpoint and all of that. I want, I don't want to go too deep uh, down this, down this rabbit hole, but um, there are operators that are, um, inherently um, capital efficient in, in by personality and, and whether the macro environment is good or bad, they, they kind of manage in a certain way. Um, I think it elevates uh, just the, the attractiveness of some of those character traits. 
Um, so uh, we have a question from Bizrot who says, what sort of uptake, if any, do you see in AI enabled solutions investment? Well, we have, we actually have on this call a, a VC who started a fund to look at AI in, in healthcare. Um, and that's Austin uh, to, to help answer that question. So particularly on the consumer and service side. Well, so let me throw in here, I've talked to a lot of VCs and a lot of young company leaders. And the way I frame this is that, um, is that for six quarters, we've had rounds CD, crossover, and IPO have been down 95%. Um, rounds A and B have been down 75%. This is in terms of, of the number of rounds, not, not the total amount of, of, of capital invested. And then seed, so A and B down 75%, and then seed um, down 25%. So C and, and then, so what's going on with seed? Well, seed um, and early stage, uh, first of all, it's different people with different pools of capital with different timeframes um, that are doing seed. But also there's been a mini boom in seed. So if you were in a favored area in seed, you might find it easy to get money. And if you're in a disfavored area, you might find it quite tough to raise money. But one of those mini booms has been in AI in healthcare. Um, so you're asking what if, if you're lucky enough to be at the early stage with truly innovative AI, um, uh, then there's a mini boom in funding that right now and has been for, for at least two quarters or more. Um, so Austin, I'll, 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 do you have any, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, analogy I use is just water columns. Um, and as seed stage funding is just much further down the water column. Right? So if you think about tempestuous uh, oceans um, if it, and, and maybe the, the, the break between water and air is IPO or something, right? And so if you're a late stage or growth stage investor, you're really um, uh, turned topsy-turvy with, with macroeconomic volatility. Um, early, the earlier you go, um, the, the more buffered you are from that. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear that statistic on, on seed stage and also um, certainly, I've seen a, um, an uptick in funding for AI applications. Um, consumerism has been a, a trend over the last few years in healthcare with HIMS and HERS, uh, Rose, um, um, many other, some of the companies in our portfolio, Paloma, uh, whose revenue, they, they treat thyroid disorders. Almost all of their revenue to date has come out of pocket. Uh, from women that are frustrated with uh, the quality of thyroid care they can receive in a general hospital. Um, so consumerism definitely um, plays a role in out-of-pocket spending. Um, uh, services as well, but I would say that um, <laughs> a lot of the reports that you read about AI being utilized actually um, operationally embedded in the workflow uh, are older types of AI than the current wave of generative AI. Um, there, there are issues around uh, proprietariness, um, competitive moats, um, how fundamental is the innovation, um, as well as cost of processing and other things uh, with respect to, um, you know, the new, the new LLM libraries. Um, and, and so, Yes, there's 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 an increase in funding. Um, it would also be interesting to look at where that funding is coming from. Um, it, um, so when when money was uh, abundant uh, in 2021, and by the way, it's still abundant. It's just sitting on the sidelines, um, or or it's or it's gathering yield in bonds. Right, <laughs> it, it, money's still abundant. 
um, there was an unprecedented uh, participation in, in venture investing on the part of angel investors and families. So uh, we have a, a term for this in markets like Utah, which is a Utah cap table. So where you have a low number of smart money, institutional grade venture capital firms, but you have very high level of economic success generally in, in the society. You just see, you would find these ventures that have raised $40 million in safe notes from neighbors, right? And, um, and this is not smart money. Um, so it would be very interesting to look and see, really analyze in the latest waves of AI. Yes, there's been an uptick in funding. Where does that funding come from? Um, and, and my sense in healthcare is we, we have to be very, very careful around um, funding. I, Steve, we had an event uh, a couple of months ago um, at Digital Health uh, Drinks um, in Boston, where I shared some views on this. Uh, in, in healthcare, um, you know, one of our core core views is that algorithms do not a company make. Um, we, we see less algorithms being funded per se than companies that are, that are use, using that, but they're full, they're vertically integrated in some fashion. They're, they're also operating a lab or they're providing care, right. To your, to your earlier point, Stephen, or so on. Um, and maybe they can realize some additional quality uh, at a reduced cost. Um, and, and they're rewarded for that, but it's, um, it's something that's, you know, part of a greater whole in healthcare generally. Very difficult to operate as a standalone algorithm in any meaningful sense. Um, so now moving on to another topic, which is a new topic for this show, which is consolidation. Uh, and so, you know, I've been, I was the first sell side analyst on wall street covering digital health for investors and every single year we would say that there, there's probably going to be a wave of consolidation coming up mm. and it never mm. happened. We didn't know why it didn't happen. Um, but on the provider side or the payer side or, or both or uh, everywhere, uh, you everywhere. know, um, you know, Oracle should be buying a bunch of pharma tech companies. Microsoft should be buying a bunch of, of, of health tech companies. Um, you know, Apple should buy Epic and turn it off. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and, uh, uh, and it didn't happen. And in retrospect, I think it didn't happen for two reasons. The, the, the first reason was that we were seeing the opposite of consolidation. We were seeing uh, entry. We were seeing entry of, of VC capital. We were seeing entry of new startups, entry of entrepreneurs, entry of talent, uh, entry of products uh, into the market. And those the, the, the new entrants always found it easy to just raise money and take a shot at being a big winner rather than sell. Um, uh, and there was no pressure to sell. That was the first reason. The second reason was that, um, you know, traditionally since World War II in the American economy, large companies were worth more than small, were worth more on a multiples basis than small companies. Public companies were worth more on a multiples basis than private companies. Um, and we had an inversion going on um, where a young company was worth 20 times forward revenue and a big consolidator was worth you know, five times forward revenue or something, because it was also growing at less than 10% or something. Um, and so the big companies could never buy. And, and oftentimes these young companies were valued based on revenue and had no earnings. Uh, so they were instantly dilutive, probably dilutive for more than two years uh, to the mm. acquirer. Mm. Uh, and so uh, it never made sense to buy. Um, you know, they, they, they were just waiting for there to be 
for public companies to become worth more or private companies to be worth less. And it didn't happen until until we were socked with the big downturn of the 2022 uh, timeframe. Hmm. Um, and so um, so now we're wondering, you know, the, that easy capital that powered the entry, that's gone with risk-free rate at 5%. Um, and uh, you're seeing some drivers of consolidation. So one of them is uh, that in, in health tech, hospital CIOs are making enterprise buys. They're switching away from best of breed, which allows a lot of young innovators to get noticed. And then moving to, to enterprise buy, I, Cisco's my enterprise choice, Epic's my enterprise choice, whatever. Uh, I'm just gonna go with their, um, all of their products and, and feature functionality. Um, and also in the employer sector, we're seeing um, that they're shifting toward away from best of breed and toward an enterprise buy. So they buy Teladoc for three of their major solutions instead of buying from three different vendors, uh, as an example. Um, and so I, I'm making a call that we're going to see this long delayed, literally never happened in, in the industry's history, <laughs> wave of consolidation. Oh, mm -hmm. A third reason is you're going to see VC portfolio consolidation, which is that a VC owns two companies in health tech, and both of them have five million in revenue. And they're gonna co combine those two companies because they sell into the same buyer. Uh, and they're, then they're gonna cut half the staff and they're gonna get to profitability faster. Uh, they're gonna have a $10 million company that, that's on a track to profitability. So you'll see that as well. Um, and uh, so I, I see those drivers. And so I'm, I'm making a call, and this is very much a, um, a, a uh, you know, out of alignment call. I think the conventional wisdom is that that we're not going to see an uptick in M and A in the next twelve months, and I'm making a call that we will see an uptick in M and A for the for the three reasons that I mentioned. So, and then consistent with that, uh, unprecedented, we saw last week Virgin Pulse, which sells into the employer budget and a couple other budgets in digital health, um, announced last week they were merging with HealthCup in a three billion dollar deal. So that's big news. In the sector, it's the biggest deal, I think, since uh, Teladoc bought Livongo in the sector. Um, and this is, to me, in the sector of selling to the employer budget, the employer, the, the, the benefit leader budget at the employer. Um, this is the starting gun to a race of consolidation uh, to get mm -hmm. to. Uh, there's different hubs like the wellness hub, the care management hub, the mental health hub, the, tele, the, the, the telehealth hub, uh, the enrollment hub, the... Um, the consumer directed benefits hub, some other hubs, and each of them has a suite of more than five products. And there's going to be a rush to get your suite filled out and to be in multiple hubs. Um, uh, and companies like Virgin Pulse and Sharecare and um, Teladoc and Omada are going to be looking and the, the, the acquirers in this. Um, and then also, at a national level, we were having a conversation that it seems like the Biden administration was being very harsh on M&A. And in the words of, of Chamath Paliyapataya on the, on the Ellen podcast, that M&A is dead. Um, well, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw that Cisco has acquired Splunk in an enormous acquisition. Um, and this seems to have, uh, you know, signaled maybe a, a change in tone of the market thinking that we will see more M&A. Not digital health here, but the larger tech and larger uh, and, and, and larger B2B and B2C markets um, where uh, uh, where we, we may see a return to a more normal level of, uh, of uh, acquisitions. And the FTC's Lena Khan 
doesn't seem to be opposing the Cisco acquisition of Splunk as far as we know so far. So uh, Austin, any thoughts? I mean, and as innovators in the innovation economy, we want there to be a thriving M&A market because uh, investors put capital into young companies and, they, and to get it out, the company can either remain independent or go public uh, or be acquired. And sometimes acquisition is the best pathway for a company. And those investors need to get a positive return out so they can go and invest in more companies. And if you kill off M&A, which people were worried that we had killed off M&A, then uh, in, investors have fewer options and they can lose tremendous value in their investments if they don't have the right option to sell the company at the right time. So uh, Austin, any thoughts? Do you think that the long-awaited uh, consolidation wave in digital health is finally here, which I'm making the call that it is? And any, any other thoughts about consolidation? I'm going to I'm going to give one um, one pro and one, one one argument for and one argument against very quickly. Two anecdotal data points. Um, so um, take them for what they're worth. But look, Lena Khan is is tied up attacking healthcare right now. I just I just chatted over a link. Um, she's uh, going after Welsh Carson, a private equity firm, for roll up. Of of service healthcare service providers in Texas, um, where they did not uh, realize efficiencies by consolidating and reduce their prices, they did the opposite. Apparently, at least according uh, as alleged, um, and so we'll see where that goes. She hasn't been um, successful yet, really, uh, um, in her in her um, uh, antitrust uh, efforts. But um, you know. Uh, Something to, to watch. Um, one of our portfolio companies from Fund One that's uh, been growing at an incredible rate, uh, 100% year over year that we expected to carry for another five to 10 years um, is being acquired now uh, by one of um, three um, you know, larger players in their market. There were sort of three natural acquirers. Uh, one of them is ready to move. Um, and is, uh, you know, they're kind of crossing T's, dotting I's on the acquisition. We're expecting that to happen next month. That would be a $130 million acquisition um, of a company that's doing about $12 million in revenue. Um, so the company had raised most of its venture capital on multiples of 20 to 25x forward-looking revenue as an AI-powered uh, company. Um, so, uh, you know, this acquisition would occur at an 11x uh, current revenues. But, you know, they expect to end the year in... Uh, at about 18. Um, and so, you know, still, um, that's just another, another data point, but, um, you know, that watching that conversation, I'm on the board of the company. Um, it's clear that the acquirer, um, you know, is, uh, you know, they see current market conditions and it makes a lot of sense. They are consolidating. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, I do. I do uh, actually anticipate in current market conditions consolidation to to proceed. Um, you know, despite some of the the issues and the high cost of capital um, right now. Uh, thank you. And so, by the way, for our audience, um, I, my apologies. We're not getting to some questions, and we're also skipping some sections that we go over because we've we've talked about some good things, but we're we're um, we're skipping over stuff in order to stay on on track. Um, so uh, the next is conferences. So um, here's where we call out conferences we think could be you know, are on our audience's radar or that we think should be on our audience's radar. And we also give them a little mini review. 
So health is coming up. Um, I just checked and looked around if health was pushing any themes this year. And I, I didn't see any themes. Their, their, their messaging was all about how it's all the elements of the health innovation ecosystem. That was their message was sort of, you know, we're not, we're not just payers and providers. We're also pharma. We're also employers, that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I didn't see them pushing. I think um, last year they were actually pushing unicorns was the theme. And that was probably an ill-timed um, <laughs> uh, theme for them. Um, but digital health was just, just very pleased to have any unicorns at all, I think, was, was part of the thinking there. But health's going to be great this year. Um, it's, it's very strong on payers and providers uh, and, this, the, and the software companies that sell to them. And it's very strong on VCs. So health, health is a great conference to go to to meet with VCs. VCs are there and they're in meeting mode. They're in a mode to meet lots of companies. So if, you know, and so that's, to me, the strength of, of health. Um, and, uh, and then I have collected the parties at health. And so feel free to message me and I'll actually, I'll stick a link in the chat here, but I have the list of parties at health. Uh, and everyone's been writing me and asking me for the list of parties. And I've actually piggybacked on health tech nerds. They put together a big list of parties at health. And then I found some, I pulled the audience and I found some, and I, I stuck them in their list and that sort of thing. And so my picks for parties is October 8th, Sunday, October 8th, I would go to the official health party. They, they spend a lot of money on that party. They, they often will have, you know, acrobats, uh, you know, performing in front of you. If you want, if you want your cocktail party with, 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 with Las Vegas acrobats, uh, uh, you know, and then October 9th, I want to go to the Zeus Health Party, uh, primarily because that has Jonathan Bush, and he has been known to do things like jump fully clothed into a hot tub um, at his own parties. Uh, and then uh, October 10th, I'm going to go to the Health Industry Day Party. Um, isn't every day Industry Day at Health? I'm not sure why they're calling this their industry party on Tuesday, October 10th. Uh, so those are my three picks for parties, um, and uh, uh, but I'll, I'll put you know, you're welcome to email me. I'll send you the link to the list of parties, um, and uh, I'll put the link here in the chat. So Austin, any any thoughts on the health conference? And should, should our our audience is young company leaders and investors in digital health? Um, they probably all know about health. Do you have any thoughts on, on health for them? Uh, no, not in not in particular. We'll, there will be five of us there. We have a happy hour on uh, Monday. We, we, there won't be acrobats there, but it, it is an earlier um, happy hour, five thirty at Paris. Uh, so please do join us. I've, I'll send over the link here. Um, would be great to see any and all of you. That's great. And then other other conferences to think of. I would just call out. Um, there is the Future of Aging Forum in Boston, Thursday, October 19th. Uh, I think this is going to sell out. Very interesting. They've got a lot of Boston's, excuse me, age tech leaders uh, and also um, state officials involved in funding of, of aging initiatives uh, coming to this Future of Aging Forum um, in Boston, Thursday, October 19th. Um, uh, and if you, if you contact me, I can send you the link to the sign up for that. Um, also, there's a STAT summit coming up in Boston. So STAT is known for breaking real news, primarily in biotech, but also med device and digital health as well. Uh, and so STAT's having a, their annual summit, October 18th, 19th in Boston. 
you know, lo looks interesting. Um, uh, and then um, the ACHE, uh, this is a, a medical association, is having their Healthcare Innovation Summit in Boston, November 2nd. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, this is a, a, one of the better um, uh, health system innovation summits in Boston. So those are, uh, and that, that's November 2nd. So those are three, uh, a couple extra conferences coming up that I just wanted to put on the radar of our audience. Um, so Austin, any conferences you're going to in, in the fall that you want to rec or, or that you want to call to our audience's attention or give a, uh, you know, a, a review positive or negative of? Yeah, you, you're the maven uh, of conferences here, Stephen. We, we sort of have a policy of going to Health and Vive, um, just two, mm -hmm. uh, a year, uh, unless we're speaking at something. Um, the stuff we speak at tends to be, uh, you know, smaller, more regional uh, at this point. So nothing to add. And by the way, for our audience, um, I think it's interesting to note that, so the Health conference is run by a guy named Jonathan Weiner, and he's a very successful conference creator. And he has created health with the assistance of Oak Ventures. Oak Ventures, the top venture fund, actually invested in his conference mm -hmm. company. It's kind of odd because venture funds usually don't invest in, in conference companies, but they did with, with Jonathan. And he has created health to be a JP Morgan killer. So that's why it is in October, so that people will go to Las Vegas instead of San Francisco and be indoors in a giant convention hall instead of being rained on in San Francisco and have fabulous programming instead of no, instead of no programming at JP Morgan in San Francisco and be focused on health innovation instead of being focused on public biotech, which is what JP Morgan in San Francisco has been, has turned into. Um, and so, and I think it's, it's being successful at, at, at drawing people away from JP Morgan in San Francisco. People want to go, to health in Las Vegas and see Cirque du Soleil. They don't want to go to Union Square, San Francisco and see open air drug markets that are not police. Mark Twain said the coldest uh, summer he ever spent was in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, and then Jonathan Weiner at Health Conference also created Vive to be a hymns killer. So he's going after hymns as well. And both those conferences, so, um, He's got, there are some reasons why both of those conferences are kind of stuck being what they are, and he can create a very modern and in some ways better experience um, with his conferences. So, so very interesting, and I, I, I recommend going to Vive as well. Um, so I think that, that's, our, that's our review of upcoming conferences. And lastly, personal notices. So my personal notices on this call are that the next show is going to be next Wednesday. Um, it's at a new time, it's at 10 a.m. And that's, that's to allow European call, callers to attend. And the show is gonna be called The U.S. Move, Relocating to the U.S. for Sales and Fundraising. And it's intended for European and Israeli companies, digital health companies that are thinking about that move to the U.S. Um, I, I have a friend who's a digital health leader in Israel and he says every single Israeli digital health company is born with a U.S. strategy in mind. Uh, and so, um, and a lot of German, Portuguese, British, uh, you'd be surprised how many of these companies are in digital health are looking at the U.S. for sales and fundraising. Mm. And so we're going to talk with um, uh, with a CEO who moved his company to the U.S. Uh, about what to learn from that. Mm. Um, and then um, 
Also, uh, tomorrow night for Boston members, I'm throwing one of my drinks parties at the Liberty Hotel tomorrow, 5.30 to 8.30. And the theme of tomorrow's drinks night is PharmaTech. And we have some pharma innovators there, including Xuan Gui, who's the famous health disruptor, former former Novartis innovation guy, uh, will be there. So uh, that's personal notices. uh, Austin, you threw in the link to your uh, to your Monday night party at Health, so that, that that's a personal appearance for you into the chat. Uh, any other personal appearances for you? No. Okay, great. So n- now we move on to our main topic, which is um, what's hot in artificial intelligence in healthcare, uh, and so. Uh, you know, I, I just wanted to, as the very first question, why don't I, um, you know, sort of, uh, so uh, th- th- there's two parts to it, what's hot and what's working. So what's hot, I would say, is new technologies that show a lot of potential. And what's working is products that are being bought. That's what's working. Okay. So uh, can you just start with, you know, just some thoughts? So for our audience's sake, in 2018, Austin founded an early stage venture fund focused on artificial intelligence and healthcare. So we have, I think, the most qualified person in America to answer this question. But what's what's hot, new technologies with high potential, and what's working, products that are being bought? Yeah, great. So I've given the <clears throat> time, I'll, I'll just share a few uh, data points on each side, um, and, and we could uh, kind of take it from there. I think um, areas that are that are very hot, uh, right now and, and have been actually for the, for the last several years. Um, and I'm, I'm setting aside the, uh, the latest wave of hype around generative AI um, because I think that the market is still wrapping its, its head around um, applications and, and again, venture, venture backable applications in healthcare particularly um, for that. So <clears throat> one, um, one area is revenue cycle management. Um, it's, it's a part of healthcare where, um, the, 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 the Byzantine processes that exist on both the, the payer side and the, um, and the provider side, uh, are inhuman. And yet you have humans managing the, the quantity of paperwork and those processes. So it's a very, um, it's very, very ripe for automation. There are a lot of re- political regulatory, uh, reimbursement encoded reasons why, you know, an algorithm hasn't torn through the market, which, which technologically it's, 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 it's possible, right? You see a lot of engineers get frustrated with this. Well, I know how to fix that, right? Well, yes, but um, you have uh, lots of rules and regulations and fragmentation of software that um, that's, that's extant uh, on which, or with which your new automating uh, product or service would need to work. Um, so those are those have been headwinds, but um, we are seeing more and more traction uh, there. Um, a good example of that um, is a um, uh, a company that um, is uh, actually there. There are a, a lot of ex- examples. I'm I'm getting her name c- confused with yours, Stephen. So I'm going to uh, Warda Enam. It's, it's not Wardell. It's Warda. <laughs> Enam, and she has a, a, a company, um, some of you may know her, called Overjet. Um, and Overjet is a company that um, 
I wish that I had backed um, back in, in, in 2019 uh, when they were raising their seed round. Um, she's done a fantastic job uh, automating uh, claim submissions and documentation in dental, in the dental industry. And along the way, created a, a company that it is worth a great deal um, of money. And there are a variety of those uh, in, in healthcare as well, um, with, I think, higher barriers to entry, but that's an area. Imaging diagnostics is another area. Um, and again, going back to uh, just this, what's the situation of humans, right, in the volume of work that needs to be done and where you see a mismatch of that, there's an arbitrage opportunity for AI. So several decades ago, uh, to be a radiologist meant that you would look at images, uh, maybe of an x-rays or, or ultrasound or other types of images, and you would um, correlate that with other data about the patient, and you would consult with the patient or the patient's other providers, and you would do case consultations. You would solve problems. You, you were solution shopping it. What it's meant recently to be a radiologist is you sit in a dark room on a computer screen. There's a, a picture archive and communications fax, and you click through images, take uh, mammograms, for instance, cancer in one out of 100 mammograms. As a radiologist, your malpractice insurance is the highest in the industry because it's very easy to miss the first instance of breast cancer in one out of the 100 uh, images that you see. Next year, they come back, they, you, you identify it, um, the uh, injury attorneys can, can, can request to look at last year's digital image, because again, you're supposed to get, you know, after the age of 50, is it 50 or so, you're supposed to get an annual mammogram and say, ah, there it is. Um, you should have caught that, right? Um, so quite frustrating on, in multiple fronts, but, but it just the, again, sort of like with medical coding and billing, it's it's this uh, it's become um, uh, um, soul sucking a little bit if if that makes sense you're no, you're no longer um, taking such a consultative role so AI can come in and help speed that up improve the quality uh, take care of cases that are fairly obvious um, and uh, re empower the radiologist to be a human physician. Um, whatever that looks like. Lots of implications for care delivery. Again, all of this exists within a context of care delivery and, and the entities out of which that care is delivered, for which there are different constructs from the general hospital to outpatient centers, even um, starting to be home-based uh, imaging procedures and so on. But that's an area, I think, with a, with a lot of promise um, in pathology, um, radiology, gastroenterology, and, and so on. Um, services, uh, there again, um, a shortage and an increasing shortage of providers to, um, uh, help older populations manage, um, things like polypharmacy where they're taking many medications at once, uh, or, uh, or mental health. Um, uh, loneliness being uh, more dangerous than smoking. Um, this is all well proven in the data. And um, finding ways to automate uh, touch points that this has been a, you know, a common refrain now for, for some years, but we're really starting to see that uh, take hold. 
uh, with a variety of companies that are focused on chronic condition management and um, utilizing the, the technology uh, very effectively uh, now to provide care at a lower cost. Um, so that's what's hot, I would say, um, uh, Stephen, from my perspective. Uh, what's working is all of that. Uh, along the lines of, of some of the principles I described in terms of vertically integrating the AI into a, um, a services uh, business, maybe even including in the case of, I, I mentioned it at the, uh, the drinks night pathology watch. This is a company that started uh, purely doing dermatopathology AI development. They realized that in order to do that at scale uh, and continue training their learner algorithms, they had to control the inputs. Uh, uh, and so they actually had to, to get into the lab business in order to do that. So think McDonald's as opposed to a mom and pop burger chain. They're, they're both burger joints, but they're, they operate very, very differently on the back end, right? And McDonald's is so carefully engineered and standardized. So whether you're, you're, you're buying their product in Indiana or New York or Bombay, it's the same. It's an extraordinary achievement um, from an engineering and design perspective. That's what AI requires. You, you cannot train AI on data that's been prepared willy-nilly in all kinds of different ways by, by various people that have different habits or, you know, methods. You, you have to really standardize all of that, which means that you need to vertically integrate um, often in our, from, in our observation, um, which is going to reduce your margins. Uh, but it may then empower you to do stuff like prognostics, with, which Pathology Watch is now doing where they combine uh, the, uh, the AI with uh, molecular diagnostic data, genomic data, to uh, provide a test that is superior in, uh, in its accuracy to Castle Biosciences, um, which is uh, charging, I've heard different numbers, but six to $8,000 a test. Um, Medicare, CMS pays that. Many of the private insurers don't. Many people willing to pay out of pocket when they're diagnosed with cancer for such a test. Pathology Watch could come in and charge half of that price um, and do very, very well um, with a, a product that performs better and, and, and costs half. So um, I'll just share that case study uh, of, that I think summarizes some of those principles of, of vertical integration um, as well as lateral integration with existing systems in the context of where you're hoping to deploy your AI. Um, so again, going back to Pathology Watch for a moment, they realized along the way that they had to build their own lab management information, the lab, lab information system or LIS. Um, very specialized for dermatopathology, but it had to integrate with the existing LIS, the existing billing, existing scheduling. All the softwares that are there, uh, there are far more than meet the eye, uh, and, and, and they had to do that work, which is thankless, it's hard, it's not sexy, um, but it, it actually forms uh, something of a moat, and in their case, provided really important insights such that their LIS dot, as it's named, is now seeing product-led growth, um, it's now exhibiting product-led growth um, in, in the market where where uh, dermatology groups are pulling it in without them having to sell it. A PLG, uh, from a sales perspective, is the best you can do. 
um, uh, e economically. Um, you really it, it, flywheel is is a word that some people use, but it's uh, it sort of grows without compulsory means, um, and that's. Uh, um, uh, two ways that, you know, again, integration, both vertically and laterally have benefited the company. And, and um, um, so I'll just, I think, leave it, leave it there uh, on a principles level as far as what's working, right? It, it, there are things that are working in every aspect of healthcare, from therapeutics to devices, to diagnostics, to health IT, to services in all specialties. Um, there are things that are working. And I think that, um, uh, in our observation, the things that are working are generally following those uh, those types of principles. Uh, that, that's great. And for our audience, by the way, now is a time to ask a, a question about AI and healthcare uh, for um, for Austin. And by the way, let, let me share with you an insight that I heard. Um, that's that's it's very interesting to me, but it's a way to think about AI, and that is that um, the first human chess grandmaster to be defeated by AI was Gary Kasparov. Mm. Um, and he came to notice that the way that chess league rules work is that a human plays a human and they're, they're forbidden to have any assistance from a computer. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in those human human games. Um, and every once in a while you'll see different AI computers play each other and IBM will, will beat Toshiba in chess or something, and nobody cares, nobody, nobody cares at all um, because it's not, it's not humans. Um, and Gary Kasparov, he noted that when you have a chess grandmaster playing an AI computer these days, the AI computer almost always wins. Um, uh, but when you have um, uh, a, uh, a human and an AI together play an AI agent, um, then they win, the human and AI win more than half mm -hmm. the time. Um, so very interesting. So he created, he had to create his own league because the official chess league wouldn't accept his plan, but it was a human with AI against a human with AI. So, so you are allowed to have help, the help of a specific uh, you know, AI computer. And the way it works is that your, your opponent moves a chess piece and there's computer vision observes where they move the chess piece and then they lift their finger off the chess piece. And then your AI instantly tells you its decision as to what your next move should be. And then as a human, your job is to say, do I take the answer that was given to me by this computer or do I make my own move? And maybe you say that was a defensive move the computer put forward. Um, but I am going to make a more aggressive move. Um, and apparently in this combination beats AI alone more than half the time. So, and, and, and he calls this the centaurs. Mm. So the centaur is a mythical Greek beast that uh, has, uh, you know, the, the top of a human and the body of a horse. And so in this example, the top human is the person and the bottom horse is the AI. And, and he's, and, but the lesson here is that, all healthcare professionals are going to be centaurs and all of us are going to be centaurs in our work, uh, which is to say that you're going to have uh, an AI that knows where you are in your workflow and, and gives you your next best decision, knows what you have to do, gives you an answer. And then as a human, your job is to look at it and say, I agree or, or I don't agree and I want to do this other thing or whatever. Uh, but a lot of the intelligence and experience uh, and, and is going to be in the system. So... 
that's uh, an interesting. And so you could imagine what are the professionals in pharma? What are the professionals in hospitals? What are they doing? And you have an AI system that knows where they are in the workflow and tells them what to do next. And then the human's job is to take responsibility and, and decide whether to do that or not. Um, so, um, I, you know, one, one uh, pithy uh, way to summarize that down to the, the level of a, of a principle, it's um, something we uh, remind ourselves of and, and physicians that we speak with that, that are made nervous by AI. We say that AI will not replace doctors, but doctors who use AI will replace doctors who don't. Which I think sort of yeah. it, 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 interesting. And I've seen doctors have some doctors have said um, that what they would like to be is coaches. So, hey, you just got a life changing diagnosis that you have cancer um, and I'm your doctor and I'm going to take you through the long journey. And uh, a lot of the hard stuff's going to be figured out. You know, we you should take this chemotherapy. We don't know in advance if it's going to work, but that's the next step for you. But I'm going to be your guide to the whole medical system and your coach to help you get through this. But you don't need me to calculate how much, what, what, which chemotherapy regime is next and what's the dose. You don't need me to do that anymore because I'll check that the eye is right, but that's all going to be done faster than we can think. Um, so, um, and, and I know doctors who like that model of the coach. In addition, it will help some doctors practice at the top of their license, which they like. They can do more of the work that is the hardest that they get paid the most for. Um, there's the potential for AI to support that uh, so that they're, instead of doing 20% of their practice at the top of their license, they're doing 80% of their practice at the top of their license. Um, so um, let's see. Um, the... Uh, um, so, uh, I want to ask about generative AI. I know you actually sort of carved it out, um, uh, earlier in the call, but, um, uh, so there's an interesting thing about generative AI, which is that before the pandemic, the FDA came out and made a statement about AI. And they said, they said, we like AI. We think AI has potential. Um, uh, you know, we've been supportive of AI in the past. We can, we expect to continue to be supportive of AI in the future. Um, but we think that AI in healthcare should be explainable. It needs to be explainable. Um, and so it, and here we may be thinking about specifically AI that has to be FDA cleared. So AI inside of an EMR might not need to be, and AI in revenue cycle management may not be, need to be FDA cleared. But AI in a cardiorhythm device may, may need to be a, uh, FDA cleared. So thinking about FDA clearance, it needs to be explainable. Um, and so the idea is that doctors make mistakes and AI makes mistakes. Um, and when a doctor makes a mistake, there's the potential to ask them what, learn why they made a mistake, improve the system. AI can't be a black box where it makes a mistake. Maybe it's better than doctors, but it still makes mistakes. Um, and then no one can ever question why. No one knows why it's doing this. You can't have that. Um, and so now, but with generative AI, gotten a huge amount of attention outside of healthcare um, as a great answer engine, better than a Google search or as generating amazing images. But two some interesting things about AI is that, about generative AI is that it's not explainable and it hallucinates and makes mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, 
So I actually have a, a contrarian thesis that generative AI is not good in healthcare, uh, even though there's gotten enormous attention in healthcare and outside of healthcare. Um, so we need AI that's explainable. Generative AI in general is not explainable. And we need AI that doesn't hallucinate and doesn't make and, and minimizes mistakes. Um, so do you have any thoughts about generative AI in healthcare? You must have gotten pitches from companies. Yes. Are you practical or are you, um, you know, do you think it has, I mean, computer vision AI has a very clear pathway in healthcare. That's, yeah. But generative AI, what, what's its pathway in healthcare? Yeah. So I'm going to first agree with you and then I'm, I'm going to, uh, by and large, but I, I think there are exceptions. Um, you mentioned hallucination. I, I think there's also um, an issue of, of skewing of, of results uh, based on abstraction from real world data. So real world data is such a big deal um, in, in healthcare um, for, un, you know, understanding outcomes for learning, for the science, um, um, new standards, um, methods are adopted. Medicine itself sort of advances on peer reviewed literature where, you, you know, double blind studies and everything is um, done in this way. And so real world data, there's a lack of it, um, at least in accessible form at scale. Uh, but it's really, really important. Um, and so um, generative AI can create, one of its applications is, is to produce synthetic data. Um, and that synthetic data can be used to approximate reality, um, but uh, in order, you know, to rely on that in a clinical sense, I think we're, we're not uh, close to that, in my opinion. We um, are closing around now in a company called Leash Labs. Um, I will um, uh, send this over in chat. Um, that is um, creating very large uh, databases using um, DNA encoded library methods and AIML um, for uh, small molecule drug discovery. Um, and the uh, Dells that they're using it ensures they're, they're creating the world's largest database of real world data of, of which proteins bind to which molecules. They then have some very interesting ideas of what to do thereafter in terms of developing a new treatment modality, which we're really, really excited about. Um, but they are using AIML, um, but they're training it on real world data. And, and that's really, really important. Um, that uh, has only become very recently possible at, at the scale that's needed because of a dramatic reduction in the cost of sequencing um, uh, genomic data um, alongside of other disruptive technologies like um, DNA encoded library um, um, uh, lab methods. So um, I think that's another issue just to, to pay attention to here is um, um, real world data and um, the, um, I mean, even OpenAI, I heard this the other day from a, a PhD level data scientist who said um, uh, you, there was an argument actually between two PhD level data scientists where one was saying, look, the, the market um, and, and many in the market um, are betting on folks like OpenAI that explicitly have set as their goal generalized intelligence. Um, and, and they think they can pull that off in some sense. Um, the other one was saying, no, no, no. 
uh, OpenAI is not there. Um, and actually they're getting close to asymptotically approaching like everything that is available um, to ingest. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the, the returns on additional ingestion are going to then kind of asymptote out and, 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 and decline, kind of level off and, um, and we're not there. So um, I think those are, those are also, you know, interesting um, issues. You also have unsupervised versus supervised learning uh, approaches. W what we've seen among, and I mentioned at the beginning of the call, over 500 algorithms have been cleared by the FDA under the software's medical device designation. Um, and this has happened, Stephen, just in the, in the last few years, um, you know, five to 10 years, let's call it. It's a big deal. It's, this is a new thing under the sun. Um, and um, I've seen in some of my former companies, we license some of these algorithms in, and you could empower a primary caregiver to calculate ejection fraction uh, for a, uh, a cardiac patient, this is something that's quite complicated and that only a cardiologist could do until very recently. So it does open up tremendous um, opportunities. Um, but in that case, the, the ultrasound, um, the ejection fraction is not relied on as definitive in some sense. Definitive is what you get to with pathology watch, right? Where they're, 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 it's kind of that moment of truth is ground truth. Um, and they're supervised um, in their approach. And, um, and I think that's another important thing to keep in mind. Areas where I think it's going. And so for, for those reasons, Stephen, I, I agree. I, I, um, we have not funded um, any gen AI, generative AI applications yet. And that may be because we're, we're slow and stupid, um, but just our thinking, our view on the market, we just haven't seen um, sufficient moats around it or integration um, or, or the mentality to integrate on the part of these companies yet. Now, with that said, let me mention um, two applications I've seen that I, that I think are intriguing. Just we hadn't found the right company to back um, doing these sorts of things. Revenue cycle management uh, actually I think is, is an area where generative AI could speed things up very substantially. There are word processing applications uh, today that basically will help you um, uh, create a body of text and then maybe suggest areas, word, word, you know, spell checker and things like that being just one aspect of this that you might want to take a look at. Um, uh, so those types of applications where annotations and, and for the purposes of billing and, and for medical records, soap notes, for instance, uh, from doctors. They spend a lot of time on this. We, I've seen a Gen AI application that stacked together a number of LLM models that, that were open sourceable li or licensable. And um, they trained on a soap note data set. And they were producing soap notes very quickly that were quite accurate. Um, you know, the doctors still need to kind of check it over, but it saves them significant time. Again, hard to um, know how to create a a defensible business out of that, but do I do I believe that these things are going to take hold um, in in uh, over the coming years? I, I certainly do. Um, drug discovery again, um, they're you know in designing um, new proteins. Um, so again, th this is a particular type of modality that that you're looking at. But and I shared again at the dinner another example, Stephen, of a 
uh, a, a lab out of Barcelona um, in Spain that is that is using generative AI to to create designer proteins um, based on characteristics of similar proteins uh, to try and achieve a result. That will have to be validated through through the the phased clinical trial work, like anything else. So, how much of the cost does that really take out? I mean, we'll see if if you get it right the first time and the second and the third. Wow, that that's a big. Um, you know, uh, that's changed the, 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 the equation very significantly, but uh, we will see. I mean, it really, it, because it's synthetic, um, it's, uh, it's another guesstimate, right? And, and we, we'll see, but maybe, maybe, maybe it will pull it off. Um, we, we shall see. That's great. Thank you. Well, so for time reasons, uh, we should we should wind this down. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. And any any final thoughts? You know, are are you seeing we for for about four quarters we seem to well no more like for two quarters we've had a huge interest in renewed interest in AI. Um, uh, and uh, have you seen you know is the amount of opportunity flow you're seeing going up, uh, or was this kind of a you know, a trend that's passing or any other thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, to at the end of the show and thoughts about the future of AI and healthcare? Um, I do think we've seen more AI recently. Um, I'm very, very optimistic uh, about the ability of AI to improve the lot of clinicians um, you know, I'll mention just one more um, example here to, to illustrate, because again, me medicine is so multifaceted and complex. It's very difficult to sum up um, in a monolithic way. So I'm just going to share maybe a, a string of anecdotes today. Um, the state passed uh, meaningful use um, legislation some years ago that required the adoption of electronic medical records. Um, on, on the part of, of provider systems. Uh, this resulted in many things, some good, some bad. Uh, but one of the really hard things has been its contribution to clinician burnout. Uh, because interacting with softwares like Epic and um, Cerner, which together have 60% of the HR market for a clinician, uh, is maddening. It really, really, I mean, far too many clicks. It, it, it's a time, um, a time sink. It's, it's very, very frustrating. Um, and they were forced to, do, to adopt um, these things. We, we, we kind of forget that. That happened in the not too distant past, right? Um, and, and so then subsequently you had um, uh, data interchangeability standards uh, that pushed again by the state. Um, and you had the development of, of standards like FIHR, FIHR, um, that, that, that are, that are um, you know, viable uh, options here. And that can, um, uh, along with uh, AI, uh, save clinicians significant time if you say, uh, put a skin on top of EHRs that, that's just for them, just for the purpose of interacting with it for the sake of creating notes um, and, and recording information, the HR as a backend system of record. Um, but, but they've effectively have a new interface. One of our companies, Wellsheet is doing this. Um, 
they've been at it for five, six years now. Um, they, they have, you know, a dozen or so logos. Um, they're just now kind of expanding on an enterprise basis with one of, you know, the third largest health system in the country. So it's a long slog. And going back to some of the earlier points around the need to integrate vertically and laterally, um, it just takes time. Um, and, um, but it's happening. Um, and, uh, I think that it, that it, it, uh, heralds a, a much better healthcare experience for, for clinicians, for payers, for uh, provider organizations, and, and especially for patients, most importantly. Um, and I, I think we're going to, we're going to bend the cost curve with, uh, with some of these enabling technologies as we, as, as the legislation catches up and, and delivery, um, models, uh, catch up as well. That's great. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, by the way, I, I grew up in the EMR sector and some, some sort of inside knowledge people don't always appreciate is that those EMRs, Cerner, um, Epic, Allscripts, uh, Meditech, et cetera, um, they were built primarily for billing purposes. They were not built for medical purposes and they were not built to have good user interfaces. Um, and so, and then the government came along and said, the way that you practice medicine is, is that first you put everything into the EMR and then to do anything, you have to get data back out of the EMR. And they put this billing system in the middle of, it, of every workflow that clinicians do. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, uh, predating generative AI, um, Microsoft and Nuance had this intriguing vision of a clinical meeting. And so you can imagine a patient sitting in an examination room and in walks the doctor. Mm. And on the wall is a big TV on the wall, except it's actually, obviously, it's a, it's a PC. It's a Microsoft Surface PC um, on the wall. And the patient and doctor begin talking and the the TV is listening and it starts putting things up on the screen. So the, the doctor says, I looked at your x-ray and right there, the x-ray appears on the screen. Um, and, uh, but the doctor, they're also talking and it's live filling out the fields of the electronic medical record report. And the doctor talks about changing a prescription and live on screen, it fills out the fields of an e-prescribing uh, order change update. Um, and then it's also taking medical notes, visit, visit notes as well in front of both of them. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, they, they finish the conclusion and then you have, uh, all this and, and because it was up on a big screen in front of them, each of them could spot what was being put in and they could make a change if they needed to, if there was a mistake, the AI agent misheard their voice, um, or, you know, they, or whatever, um, the, 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 di the diabetes diagnosis was more severe than it was rated in, in the document by the AI agent, um, uh, or that sort of thing. So that, that, that's their vision of finally having a good, um, you know, user interface on top of, of these kludgy EMRs. And that could be powered by generative AI, although this vision and the technology predates, uh, generative AI. Yeah. So, um, well, on, with that note, um, you know, uh, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Stephen. And you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk uh, with your host, Stephen Wardell, and thanks to our guest, Austin Walters. 
Our next show will be Wednesday, October 18th with the topic of the U.S. move relocate for sales and fundraising with guest uh, Yossi Mossel. Um, and for our Boston audience, I hope to see you tomorrow night for our digital health drinks night on, on Pharmatech at the Liberty Hotel at Charles MGH T-Stop, 530 to 8.30. And to find out about more events and shows, visit my Eventbrite page at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, uh, and thanks, and, and I'll see you next week.